Well, turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to that passage in Acts. Acts 7, we're, we're picking up in verse 54. Now, over the last three weeks, I believe, we've heard Stephen turn the charges that had been made against him back onto the Jewish leaders. They said that he had spoken against the temple, but Stephen says that their rejection of Jesus is a rejection of what the temple was pointing toward, the presence of God with his people. The Jewish leader said that he had spoken against God's law, but he says that they rejected the law and the lawgiver. They crucified the righteous one who kept the law for us. Now, while the leaders grind their teeth at him, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, is granted this vision of Jesus. Jesus alive and glorified and standing at God's right hand. That's easy to understand the effect that this has on Stephen. Seeing Jesus like this so clearly is going to sustain him through what's about to happen. And we're going to talk about that. But there is more to Stephen's vision here than mere encouragement for Stephen personally. Now, we've heard throughout our time in Acts how God enables his messengers, those who speak for him, to do signs and wonders. Those miracles authenticated their message so that everyone would know that they spoke for God. Well, in a similar way, God uses visions like this one to, as one person put it, endorse crucial change. That was taking place. Like the vision of Jesus' glory at his transfiguration endorses Jesus' determination to go to Jerusalem and die. Like Peter's vision that's coming up in Acts 10 of the sheep coming down filled with animals. Like that vision endorses God's inclusion of the Gentiles into the church. Here... Stephen's vision of Jesus at God's right hand endorses a change that God's people desperately need to understand. So what's the change? This is our first big question. What's the change here? What's new? What's different? What's new and different is the separation, the estrangement of God's new community from the traditional people of God. As the Jewish leaders persist now for the third time or maybe fourth time, depending on how you count it, as they persist in their rejection of Jesus as the fulfillment of God's ancient promises, God is endorsing the community of Jesus as his special people. From this moment on, it is only believers in Jesus with their children who are to be considered God's covenant people. And that is precisely because they, like Stephen, are embracing Jesus as the fulfillment of God's covenant with Israel. Because these followers of Jesus put their faith in the same Christ in whom Abraham and Moses and David and all of the faithful Israel, Israelites had put their faith. God's people of old had been looking forward to the Christ. 
God's people in Acts recognize Jesus to be the Christ. And so, of course, this vision of Jesus confirms for believers that everything that Stephen just said in his speech was true. Jesus is better than the temple because he is the place where God and his people meet. Jesus is the priest who is his people's access to God by his own body, through the sacrifice of himself. And and there he is. There the priest is. Stephen sees him standing at God's hand as if he's ready to receive Stephen's spirit. This vision confirms, yes, that Jesus is also the fulfillment of the very law that the leaders had rejected. He is the righteous one who kept the law for us and died in the place of lawbreakers to bring us to God. And so, Moses, to whom the Jewish leaders are clinging, yes, Moses may have been the ruler and redeemer that God had provided for his people in the Exodus, but God's people in Acts and today see that Jesus is the ruler, the redeemer the forever king and priest over the people of God. And so, yes, all Stephen said is true, but in confirming all of this, this vision endorses the church as the community of the Christ. This vision confirms that this seemingly new community of believers in Jesus is actually very old indeed. The church is now what Israel so often failed to be. And that failure is being embodied by the Jewish leaders because they reject Jesus. In Christ, who is the faithful Israelites, Christians have become the people of God. And that means God's ancient promises of a priestly king, who will bring us near and reign over us in righteousness, is already ours as we cling by faith to Jesus. But if it's true that believers in Jesus are now God's people, if it's true that God's ancient promises belong to you who belong to Jesus, then how should we expect things to go for us? Simultaneous with this glorious vision is a reality check for anyone who assumes that followers of this glorious king will somehow live a life of comfort or ease, at least in this life. Because even as this vision marks a change in recognition as to whom the name people of God rightly belongs... It also marks the beginning of the first great persecution of Jesus' followers. Luke underscores the relationship between Stephen's murder and the persecution that follows, even in the way that he organizes this section. Another noted that by placing the burial of Stephen in 8.2, by placing the burial of Stephen between two references to the persecution, he emphasizes the close connection between Stephen's martyrdom and the persecution of the church. He's actually showing us in the way that he wrote the story. He's showing us that this persecution arises 
because the Jewish leaders view the Christians as separate. Stephen is murdered, and then men and women are drug off by Saul because Jesus' followers are now seen as a separate, blasphemous bunch to be stamped out rather than just some other group within Judaism. Their identity as God's special people is the very thing that paints a target on their back. Their faith in Jesus is the reason for their suffering. And in this we see something that you and I must grasp again today. Something we've seen already glimpsed. Uh, we've seen glimpses of this already in Acts back when the apostles first suffered for speaking the name of Jesus. Now, as even greater suffering comes to this leader in the local church and, and then even to ordinary Christians in the town, we need to grasp again that all who follow Jesus are following a crucified king. To say it another way, Christ, who is now exalted over all, was once scorned by men, suffering a shameful death. And throughout the New Testament, it is impressed upon believers that the pattern of Jesus' life, humiliation, then exaltation, suffering, then vindication, death, then resurrection, the, the pattern of his life, the shape of his life, will be the shape of all who follow in his steps. Jesus himself said that's how it was going to be. As another pastor reminds us, for the sake of the Son of Man, Jesus tells his followers, Jesus said his followers would experience hatred, exclusion, insults, rejection, Instead of a warm welcome that their message deserves, they would encounter closed doors. They would be arrested and brought to trial before synagogues and rulers and authorities. In Stephen, and in the history of the church, we see Jesus' words fulfilled. We, we see them still being fulfilled in our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and Iran and Indonesia who suffer a lot for the sake of Christ. And while it's true that we do not suffer in the same way as them, you also know what it means to suffer for being separate from the world. Someone said, Western nations today pride themselves on having outgrown the immaturity of religious intolerance and conflict that have characterized other ages and cultures. Nevertheless, among the sophisticates of postmodern Europe and America, antipathy toward the message of Christ be, it remains both alive and eloquent. If we fail to recognize our culture's polished put-down of biblical truth in the press or entertainment or academia, if we fail to recognize it as a revival of the old stratagem of persecution through words, 
then Christians run the risk of being silenced by intimidation, embarrassment, and shame. We run the risk of being paralyzed, not by the threat of the jail cell or a sword, but paralyzed merely by the possibility of appearing foolish. However, if we learn how our king expects us to respond to the, word, to the wounds that words inflict, then we will also be fortified by his spirit to confront in confident hope whatever pain lies in the path of faithfulness. The pastor who spoke about our culture's revival of that old stratagem, he spoke those words 25 years ago. And in the years since, we know that such polished persecution has intensified in our culture, which means that his urgent call for us to learn what our king expects of us is all the more important today. Because you know how hard it is to experience such injustice. It makes our blood rise and we feel the deep wrongness of it, deep down in the core of our being. And all around, I see Jesus' followers today responding to this polished persecution with anger over what is and fear about what's to come. But how, how does our king call us to respond to such persecution? How does our king call us to respond to such persecution? Rather than responding to the reality with fear or anger, I want to suggest that in Stephen, God is pointing his people in another direction altogether. In this man who dies full of the Holy Spirit. It's as if God is saying to us, look at him. Look how he conducts himself in the face of death. Look, uh, watch how he acts amid injustice. Listen how he trusts Jesus and speaks truth with love. This is what it looks like to be my special people, my separate people. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is how I want you to present yourself to the world when they come at you with gnashed teeth and closed ears. If they won't listen to your words, then let them see Jesus, see Christ in your gentle death. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. There is a place for anger. But you have to know that what you do with that anger is as much a part of your discipleship as your sexuality or what you do with your money. And there is a place for lament. We see in 8.2 the great lamentation that was made over Stephen's death. When all that we can do is endure because we can't change any of it, then taking that pain to God in lament is absolutely right. And yes, we need to consider that there are lawful ways to address 
wrongs, ways of using the legal system itself to protect ourselves and to protect others against injustice. Thank God for that. We can make use of those things just like the Apostle Paul is going to do later in Acts. There is room for resistance when we are motivated, not by a spirit of self-preservation or making personal rights the ultimate good. There is room for resistance if through our resistance we might honor the name and the word of Jesus in this world. So please don't hear what I'm not saying. But what I'm talking about now is the heart of the believer that beats beneath it all. What kind of spirit motivates the believer, whether we have some control over what's happening, or like Stephen here, no control whatsoever? Is it possible that whichever path we take, the path of resistance or the path of Endurance. Is it possible that God calls us to take the same, to take either path in the same spirit? Is it possible that our King means for us to show ourselves to be His people, whether we resist publicly or die helplessly? Of course, the answer is yes. And when we see how Stephen conducts himself here, believers, then and now see something of what it looks like to be the people of God. We see something of how our crucified king calls us to respond when we encounter persecution of any kind or any degree. First, because we know Jesus, we bear witness to him no matter the cost. We bear witness to him no matter the cost. It's it's clear here that Stephen knows Jesus. As Philip showed us over the last three weeks, Stephen's understanding of who Jesus is as the fulfillment of God's promises is deep and it's wide. He sees Christ in the entire Old Testament. And seeing him now in this vision, as he really is, his living priest standing at God's right hand, he cannot but speak. He cannot but bear witness. He has something to say, whether others will receive it or not. He speaks with extreme boldness. Why? Because he knows that he has a priest who goes all the way in before God, and he does it for us. And to the extent that you and I see that we have such a priest in Jesus, then we too will be fearless witnesses of him. Listen, you know that we live in an anxious age. So many people live as if this age, this country, this election cycle, this pandemic, this pay period, they live as if this is all that there is. But if it is really true that we can stand before the face of God and look Him in the face because Jesus brings us in by His blood, if it is really true that our Redeemer lives and stands at God's right hand, if it is really true that Jesus is the Son of Man whom 
the prophet Daniel saw, who has received now from the Ancient of Days dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. If all of that is true, then we have something to say to anxious people. We say what Stephen says. Heaven is open because our priest stands at the right hand of the Father. This is what you need. Parents, this is what your children need. Elders, this is what the flock needs. Children, this is what your friends need. As another pastor says, this is the thing that is beneath all other things. This is the thing beneath psychological problems and the sociological problems. This is it. We have a priest who goes all the way in, and he does it for us. Like Stephen, though, the cost for saying this might be high. Living in light of this might be a high price to pay. You might lose friends. You might lose jobs. You might be marginalized at school. You might be marginalized in this culture, pushed to the side, out of the place of influence that Christians have enjoyed for a very long time. That's okay. Don't be afraid. We have a priest who goes all the way in for us. So be ready to give a reason for the hope that, it, that is within you, even if you simply say, my hope is Jesus. He's my priest. And I'd love for you to talk with my pastor about everything that Jesus is for us. It's as simple as that. And so because we know Jesus, we bear witness to him, no matter the cost. <clears throat> and there's a second way here that our King calls us to respond to persecution. Because we have the Spirit of Christ, we entrust our spirits to Christ. In verse 59, look there. As they are stoning Stephen, he calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The same Holy Spirit that fills him and helps him see Jesus also enables him to look expectantly to Jesus, even in the face of death. Another notice is there is a certain trusting innocence in these dying words of Stephen. The, these words are actually an ancient Jewish prayer based on Psalm 31.5, which children were taught to pray at bedtime. Into your hands... I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. You can't miss here that Stephen entrusting his spirit to the Lord mirrors Jesus' own entrusting of his spirit to the Father with his dying breath. And just as the Father showed himself completely worthy of Jesus' trust by raising him from the dead. Stephen knows that this Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, this Jesus is worthy of that same trust. Because although those who stubbornly reject Jesus will gnash their teeth at him and kill his people, even so, 
the Son of Man is alive and enthroned, and His kingdom is breaking into this world, and He will bring life to all who hope in Him, even those who die a death like Stephen's. Luke actually holds this resurrection confidence in front of us as he says in verse 60 that Stephen fell asleep. One commentator pointed out that the early Christians often used the concept of sleep for death. It was their way of confessing their assurance of resurrection. And no one died with greater assurance than Stephen. He fell asleep with the vision of his risen Lord at God's right hand still fresh on his mind. While you and I might not see such a vision ourselves as we approach death, even so, we can see Jesus with our ears as we return to God's word again and again. His word that assures us that Jesus is worthy of our trust, no matter what happens in this life. It's as Paul, once Saul, wrote himself. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is indeed interceding for us. I, I, I can't help but read these words and imagine that Paul has the stoning of Stephen in his mind. Paul, Paul must hear the echoes of Stephen's speech as he says these things. And he goes on, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or sword, as it's written? For your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul wrote that so that we might rely on the same Spirit that it, of Christ that is in us and so with confidence meet whatever persecution comes. Because Christ is worthy of our trust. We can entrust ourselves to Him totally. And so our King calls us to respond to persecution by entrusting our own spirits to Him. And there's one more way that I want us to see how He calls us to respond in this passage. Since we have a priest like Jesus, we must behave like priests, especially toward the Sauls of this world, the Sauls of today. Look, just look at the rage in this passage for a moment. When Peter accuses the crowd at Pentecost of crucifying the Christ, they were pierced to the heart. But then what did they do? 
they repented, they turned to Christ and joined his church. But when Stephen levels essentially the exact same charge at these Jewish leaders, they are enraged. Literally, the word is they were cut to the quick. So furious that they gnashed their teeth. And when Stephen shares his glorious vision of Jesus, they close their ears and they rush at him and they stone him. With this young man Saul watching over their garments, likely so that their arms can be free to throw with greater accuracy. But then look at the rage in Saul. He himself seems to lead this great persecution that follows. In his zeal to protect God's law, he ravages the church. That word ravage is a strong expression that's used most, most often for wild beasts like lions and bears and leopards tearing at raw flesh. It, it, we see Saul progressing from being a bystander at Stephen's murder, to giving full mental assent, he approved of the execution, to, after that, becoming the church's worst enemy. But look at Stephen. Look at, listen to Stephen in verse 60. Look how he behaves like a priest. In the face of their fury, in the face of their rocks, he prays for them. Lord, do not hold this sin against him, against them. This is a man who knows that his priest goes into God on his behalf, goes all the way in. He knows that his priest hung on the cross and prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so praying like his priest, Jesus is able, uh, Stephen is able to image his priest. He is sympathetic with these people in their ignorance. He is concerned for their ultimate well-being, and he expresses it without malice, without mockery, by returning their evil with good. He prays for them. And consider this. How did God answer his prayer? Did not Saul Numbered among the them for whom Stephen prayed, didn't Jesus take Saul and make him Paul? One pastor asked the question, do you know that there are a lot of people in your life who want nothing to do with God, but you can take them to God anyway? Through the faithfulness of your priest, your ignorance and sinful rebellion has been forgiven at great cost to himself. And he has made you, by his grace, a kingdom of priests, agents of reconciliation, of him who is reconciling the world to himself so that their trespasses might not be counted against them. And so far be it from us to be mocking priests who show no pity on people, even our enemies, who, like the people of Nineveh in Jonah's day, do not know their right hand from their left when it comes to the realities of God's kingdom. You have to see how dangerous it is for you and how damaging it is to our witness of Jesus if we mock and condemn those who mock and condemn us. 
another pastor notices how there are many on social media whose goal, whose main goal, stance, and practice is to mock and deride the people whose positions they oppose. But this is spiritually dangerous for them, and it accomplishes nothing for their side. But God's people today have the opportunity to live a priestly life, whether it's online or in person. In fact, Peter tells us that to this kind of life we have been called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example so that we might follow in his steps. And when God's people live as God's people like this, You have to see how beautifully God works through this. Did you catch this little phrase in 8.1? Look back there. I trust Philip is going to talk about this more next week. But when the great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, everyone except the apostles were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Can you think of another place where those three areas are mentioned together, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Jesus told his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is how it starts. Through his people sharing in the sufferings of Christ. I don't understand it. But when his people suffer well, witnessing to Christ and trusting themselves to him fully, behaving like priests, it always advances the gospel. It's so hard to live this way. It's so easy to slip back into the old man's ways, to the world's ways. And that makes it so important for us to return again and again to Stephen's vision of Christ. Only if we know that Jesus' verdict over us is forgiven and cleansed and adopted can we face death calmly. Only if we constantly see our priest who goes in before God on our behalf can we live with deep sympathy and patience toward other people. Only if we can trust Him through life and death can we be strong in the face of persecution and meek toward our persecutors, even the Saul's of today. But because we have such a trustworthy priest who reigns over us as king, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe it? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father, we praise you for this word that assures us that our king, our priest, is standing at your right hand and interceding for us, giving us access to you. Father, strengthen us by this vision. uh, Instill confidence in our hearts so that we might again and again walk as your people here, day by day, moment by moment. Father, forgive us for the ways we have not behaved like priests here, but renew us, Father, into the image of Christ our Savior, our Lord. It's in His name that we pray, and for His glory, amen.